Ezekiel 18, and then uh, we'll read the catechism lesson uh, together as well. That's back in the back of the Psalter hymnal, page 11, Lord's Day 4th, Lord's Day 4. Ezekiel chapter 18, fairly well-known chapter of Ezekiel's prophecy, and uh, we will use it for our consideration tonight. So here, once again, God's holy word, Ezekiel 18. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest and takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity, he shall surely live." As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father, when the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes? He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed, and keeps all my statutes, and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. 
Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed, for them he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Then our catechism lesson is Lord's Day 4. We'll read the answers together, as is our normal practice. Lord's Day 4, questions 9 through 11. Question 9. But doesn't God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man is unable to do? No, God created man with the ability to keep the law. Man, however, tempted by the devil in reckless obedience, disobedience, robbed himself and his descendants of these gifts. Will God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly angry about the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, he punishes them now and in eternity. He has declared, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But isn't God merciful? God is certainly merciful but he is also just. His justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Let us go to God once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you. 
We give you all thanks and praise for this, your word. We ask that you would be with us uh, and bless us as we gather around your word now. Feed us and nourish us with heavenly food. We pray, O Father, too, that uh, you would be with the sick and and the afflicted in our congregation and be with them as they look towards upcoming treatments or continue to seek uh, recovery of strength. Be with them in this evening hour and uh, lift them up. For Christ's sake, we pray all these things. Amen. Dear congregation, this week I was having a discussion with a a non-believing friend and It was something of a mental gymnastics for him, seemingly, trying to justify his approach to living. Uh, We were discussing some spiritual things and and things about life, and essentially it came down to him saying something like, I I live life my way. I I do the things that that I want to do, and, and ultimately I don't see it as much of a problem. I speak to God from time to time on occasion, usually most nights I'll say some kind of a prayer, throw some kind of prayer upwards. I I believe in the end God will be in no position to condemn me, was essentially his his argument. I sensed in talking to him, he seemed to be dealing with a a large measure of guilt in his own heart, almost trying to justify himself uh, to me, almost as he's reasoning out these things, trying with some difficulty to suppress all of these feelings. And we've heard these kinds of arguments before. There's this tendency in all of our hearts, the fleshliness of our hearts, to to make excuses, to try to justify ourselves, to get out from under the sense of justice, the, the, the truth of God's condemnation against sin, which we see consistently all, all throughout Scripture. If we reason it out ourselves, we see ourselves as profoundly less sinful than what Scripture calls us. And thus, we see ourselves as less sinful than we really are. For who is correct? Our own minds or God's Word? Tonight's lesson in this sermon is about the the sinfulness and the absurdity of making excuses before God. We all make excuses. Growing up in school and we forget the homework, we try to make an excuse to our teacher. As children growing up, we make excuses to our parents, perhaps when we feel cornered at work or something like that, and whether or not we say it, we we feel excuses well up within us. We we try with with some difficulty usually to, to do these kinds of things, but to make excuses before God is not only sinful, it is absurd. The thing that is perhaps saddest about our tendency to make excuses, to self-justify, is that it is not as though the sentence of sinful leaves us with nowhere to go. And that's what Ezekiel 18 lays out so beautifully. Yes, we are sinful, but it is not as though that is the, the end of the story. God provides a way in the way of, of repentance God is just, but God is merciful. And what we find in Scripture is that it is especially the mercy of God that he delights in. He delights to show mercy. His mercy and his blessing has a a superabundant flow. God visits the iniquity of the children to the third and fourth generation. 
but his love is unto a thousand generations of those who love him, who keep my commandments. The Lord is merciful and gracious, we read in Exodus 34, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, his mercy is exalted, and yet his justice is not thwarted. That's the God that we, we serve. We tend to want to absolve ourselves in this uh, game of making excuses. John Calvin says so beautifully, he says, man cannot absolve himself without condemning God. We try to get out from under the sentence of of condemnation. And and what is that? It's really a a condemnation of God's judgment. It may begin as something of an oblique criticism, as we see here in Ezekiel 18. Where does it begin? It begins by saying, well, we are not in exile because of our sin. We are in exile because of our father's sins. You see, it started as kind of an oblique criticism of God's judgments relative to the generation before them, or two generations before them, perhaps. But then it becomes a a full-throated condemnation of God's judgments. Your ways are not just. And that's always where it, it brings us when we try to justify ourselves before God. It may begin as something of what we think is an argument. But what it becomes is looking straight at the, the justice of God and saying, His ways are not just. We see this working out in, in, our, in our passage, which teaches us several things. First, we see the setting forth of God's justice and uh, our call to rest in God's righteous judgments. Second, we see that it is God, not ourselves, who acts not only rightly and justly, but generously and graciously. And then lastly, we see that since all of that is true, we must enter the way of repentance so that iniquity is not our ruin. So first, the setting forth of God's justice. The setting forth of God's justice, as we see here in in Ezekiel 18. God was responding to a proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are, are set on edge. This was something that was being said in the time of, of Ezekiel, which is a mostly exilic prophet. So we're talking here about the, the time of, of exile. The Israelites are, are attempting to shift the blame away from themselves for being in the exile. They saw themselves or their generation as basically obedient. And we need to be aware, just as somewhat of an aside, we need to be aware of our own tendency to do this. We always tend to see our generation, our time of living, as uh, the, the time in which we've got it the most right. Maybe that becomes more difficult a project now as we look around. But the author Jerry Bridges talks about a problem of, of cultural holiness. We, we tend to, 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 to moor our ideas of holiness to the culture that we see around us and make comparisons with, with those that we see living life around us. And we tend to, to think something like, well, if, if we don't quite look like the world, we're doing pretty good. We need to make sure that we anchor our ideas of, of holiness to God's word. We tend to, to, to think, well, this is the time where we've got it most right. And that's certainly what the Israelites were, were doing here. We uh, our, our father's generation, our, our grandfather's generation, perhaps they were the ones 
who sinned enough that God would put them in this place. But, but we, we have not sinned. We're suffering because of what our fathers have done. God shows them th- that this is faulty reasoning, and, and he does so by setting up three hypothetical characters. We'll call them a grandfather, a father, and a son. Three generations. And really, that's the way that they're functioning. These three characters represent three generations in, in Israel. And the upshot of all of this, what God is doing through the grandfather, the father, and the son, is to make a very simple point. And this point is placed before us in this scripture, and this is something that we need to accept as true. No one ever suffers unjustly at the hands of God. He is a perfect and a just and a righteous judge. That's what those three pictures teach us. No one ever suffers unjustly at the hands of God. We ask, though, we find it places in Scripture, what do we do when when the Bible says God visits the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation? Some people come to Ezekiel 18 or other places in the prophets, and they think that these principles are being reversed. It used to be this way, that God would visit the iniquity of the children because of the sin of the fathers, but now he does not do it. Ezekiel 18 is kind of this turn in in redemptive history. Well, that's not what is going on in in Ezekiel 18. Uh, Rather, in Scripture, we find both of these principles at work. They do not contradict one another. That's that the soul who sins shall die. That's what it says in Ezekiel 18. All people are accountable before God. And yet, at the same time, in a way that doesn't contradict with that truth, because God's word never contradicts itself, in a way that doesn't contradict that truth, sin has a cumulative effect. So sometimes you see these principles working side by side. In Jeremiah chapter 32, it says this, You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You see that they're, they're stated side by side, thus it's assumed, very clear, these cannot contradict one another, these principles. You see, sin gathers in a cumulative way. This is the, the natural way of sin, if we can speak of it that way. Sin snowballs. It gathers in a cumulative way. And thus, when we see that principle in Scripture, visiting the sin of the fathers onto the children, it's speaking of that cumulative effect of sin and uh, that there is an assumption there that the ongoing generations would be those that also rebel against God. That can be interrupted, that, that rhythm, that generation to generation can be interrupted by the grace of God, by repentance and by forgiveness, and that's where we see the superabundant flow of God's love. His love abounds to a thousand generations of those who, who love him. So God deals with each person individually, yet sin can have cumulative effects. So it's not some kind of great shift in redemptive history, God beginning to work in a different way. Let's look at these three characters. First, the the grandfather. He's faithful. He obeys both tables of the law. You see him, uh, there are descriptions of his his worship. He worships faithfully. He also serves others faithfully. It's not just that he he does not break the Ten Commandments. I stole, I didn't steal today. 
but that he seeks to do good to those who are less fortunate than he is. You notice there's a, there's a lot of language about uh, seeking out those who need help and not exploiting the poor. Notice how much that language is filled in here. So he lives because God is a, a just judge. And his ways are seen in a certain way. He, is, he lives righteously and he lives. Second, the father, he is idolatrous in worship. He is violent. He is adulterous. He is exploitative towards, towards his neighbor. It's fair to say that it's opposite in every way of his father, the generation before him. He lives in, a, in an opposite way, and that's the way that it, it comes to us in the text. The result, he is judged according to his sin. He dies, it says. God's judgment is upon him. The son, the third generation, he sees his father's mistakes. He corrects them, and he lives like his grandfather, doesn't he? Makes those corrections. Once again, it's not just external conformity to the Ten Commandments, but there's a a heart religion, being generous towards others, seeking needs and and filling them. It reminds us of the, the searching nature of God's law. God's law, there's a depth to all of the Ten Commandments. And we, God seeks uh, our serving him from a pure heart. He shall surely live, it says in, in verse 18. Yet his father shall die. What's the lesson that we learn from these three characters? Well, in one sense, we see them as hypothetical, ideal examples. Israel would have been called to see that they are under the judgment of God because of of their sin, their own generation's sin. And it's God's way of driving them out of their boasting. It's God's way of laying bare their iniquity. That's what's going on. We also ask the question, are the first and third characters, the, the, the grandfather and the son, are these examples of impossible righteousness that cannot be attained? Their, their, their lives of obedience are impressive for sure. Are they set before us as these ideal examples of, of, of life, a life that you cannot live? Uh, it's impossible, in other words. Well, that's not really the central question of this passage, but we'll offer a, a few comments in light of it. This passage is meant to drive us to the mercy of God, but we can say a couple of things. First of this, no one, we need to understand, no one merits life before God. No one earns life before God on the basis of his own performance. No one earns life uh, or God's favor by his law, law keeping. This is why many people take those two examples as simply ways to show us cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law because we read that and we say well I don't perfectly live that way some people take it that way we also should remember though that to be joined to God in the covenant of grace to be to be forgiven in Christ and to stand in grace means that God is pleased to accept what proceeds from a pure heart, that is, a heart that is devoted to him in sincere faith. So you'll find in, in, the, in the New Testament descriptions like this, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. You can love God from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In Romans 13, it says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. James 2, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All of these remind us that as we live with God in the covenant of grace, he is pleased to accept sincere devotion that proceeds from a pure heart, a heart that is devoted to him. And so some may say that the grandfather and the son, what do they put on display for us? Covenant obedience. Because it describes sincere efforts to obey God's commandments. Now, whichever position one would take, this is kind of, I'm kind of driving this mediating position tonight. Do the grandfather and the son put on display for us lives that we cannot live, and thus it drives us to the mercy of God, or does it put on display covenant obedience? Well, whichever position you would take, you would have to affirm both of those principles. I cannot earn eternal life before God. I cannot, I cannot merit salvation before him by my law keeping. But then also, God, after forgiving my sin, as I trust in the Savior, as I trust in Jesus Christ, he is pleased to accept a life that is lived in sincere faith, a life that is pleasing unto God. And so we have to affirm both of those things as we come to God's word. But what is the the central lesson in these three characters? Well, God is exposing the fleshliness of this proverb. The fathers have eaten sour grapes. The children's teeth are, are set on edge. One theologian says this. One commentator says this, I should say. The reason was that they found it more agreeable to their carnality, more soothing to their pride, to regard themselves as innocent sufferers for sins they had not personally committed. How present is that in all of our hearts? It's more pleasant to our minds. It's more pleasant to our consideration to think that what I am suffering is not because of my own sin. What I am suffering is because of what someone else has done. Adam, or my grandfather, or my father. We want to point somewhere else. They don't want to accept, he goes on to say, their troubles having, uh, being because of their own departures from the law of righteousness. This is, what, this is what we do. Just as Israel did not want to look at their sin in their own exile, so we hate to look at our sin in relation to the word of condemnation that is pr- pronounced in Scripture. The soul who sins shall die. What do we say? We say, surely I am not that bad. This kind of exposes some of the the flaws of of our culture, the flaws of our world. Identity politics. Identity politics, well, we, we fit within this kind of mold of an identity and we act a certain way because this is who we are, it's who we were made to be. To a lesser degree, perhaps this is what happens with, with personality tests and categorizations. Well, I, I act this way because this is, this is how I scored on a personality test. This is my profile. So, yeah, these are flaws that I have, but I do them because I'm this way. We justify. We make excuses. 
And what do we do in light of all of this? Well, we remember the judgments of God. We remember that when we want to make excuses for ourselves, who is a perfect judge? God is. Thus, we must submit to his judgments. To be a Christian, to be part of the people of God, is to accept and rest in God's judgments, even when they grate against our flesh, even when all of our sensibilities are screaming out that it should not be, it ought not be, it cannot be. We rest in God's judgments. John Calvin says this, not only is God's wisdom incomprehensible, but his justice is the most perfect rule of all justice. Now, if we, if we desire to pass opinions upon God's works according to our own perceptions and to weigh them in our balance, right, that's, a good, that's a good visual, isn't it? You've got your balance out and you put God's works on that balance to see how it evens out. Who then becomes the judge? Well, Calvin says this, what else are we doing but passing judgment upon him? That's what we so often tend to do. It seems contradictory to many in in today's world that anyone would undergo condemnation, but we submit to the words and the works of God and his supreme wisdom, not our own. He also shows the Israelites here in Ezekiel 18, and he shows us that God is the one. He is the one who acts justly and generously, not us. The great injustice of our thinking is that we want God to grant blessing to sinners who shift blame off of themselves. That's what happens when someone's making excuses, when we're making excuses. And this is exactly where the argument of self-defense before God will bring you. We begin by making an oblique criticism of God. My father sinned, not I. And you are rendering judgment on the wrong person to then become a full-throated condemnation of the ways of God. Your ways are not just, in verse 25. God shows the Israelites a couple things. uh, You want blessing when you have sinned. That was their argument. Yes, we have sinned, or they, they, they were unwilling to admit that, but they wanted blessing when sin was their reality. That means, the Lord would say, you are disobedient, you are ignorant, and you are arrogant about it. And you claim that you can judge my works as if you dwell above me. You claim that you can look down at what I do. The argument that God returns to them is simple and it's beautiful. God, it is as if God is saying, I have showed you that I am just in rendering judgments according to each one's works. The righteous shall live, the wicked shall die. But so far from giving judgment where it should not go, because that's the criticism. You are, the Israelites are looking at God and saying, you are giving judgment on the ones, the one, to the ones on whom it should not go. God says, so far from giving judgment where it should not go, I want you to see my mercy as well, for I will not even visit someone for their own iniquities if they come to me in repentance. See, he exalts his mercy, and in doing so, he says, not only am I just, and my ways are just, you are the ones who are unjust because you want blessing where there is sin, but I am generous and gracious enough to be the one who will say, I will not punish one for his own sin if he comes to me in repentance, if he turns, beautiful Hebrew word, shuv, to turn, 
That's repentance. It's a turning, isn't it? Turning from our own work, understanding and apprehending the mercy of God in Christ and turning from our sin in, in grief and hatred of it and, and uh, turning unto God, entrusting in Christ and fully endeavoring after new obedience. That's what repentance is. So God says, behold my mercy and yet remember that he will never act unjustly. He will never act unjustly and that's why he gives uh, that warning when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice. Can God be mocked? No, of course not. Of course he can't. And so it becomes then a call to, to live in the way of faith and repentance. So ask yourself, brothers and sisters, in what way are you living before God? Shifting the blame elsewhere? Oblique criticisms of the ways of God? Condemning God outright? Perhaps trusting in your own righteousness? Perhaps a, a guilty backslider? The solution that God gives, repent and turn from all your transgressions. But how can that be? How, how can that result in a blessed thing? To turn in repentance. Because God is just. How do his justice and mercy come together? And I apologize for putting off until this moment in the sermon, but I thought it appropriate as we're walking through Ezekiel. How do we know God's justice and his mercy come together? They come together in Christ. They come together at Calvary. They come together at the cross. What is the cross of Jesus Christ? The cross of Jesus Christ is God showing us that he will not stop short of saving sinners without shirking his justice. He will save and he will redeem and he will establish and he will renew in a way that does not go against who he is as a just God. At the cross we see the holiness of God on display, the righteousness of God on display, the justice of God on display, and the love and the mercy and the grace of God. All coming together in the Savior, Jesus Christ. For we see our Savior serving the just sentence of a sinner. It was just. Serving the just sentence. In my place, condemned he stood. If he had not gone all the way to death, we would be condemned to die. So how does repentance work? Because God has provided a way for salvation in Jesus Christ. God's justice was exercised upon Christ so that you can experience God's mercy. So simple, yet so profound and so beautiful. Your hope must be nowhere else. He will forgive, he will cleanse, he will establish only in Jesus Christ. We'll end with just a, a short consideration where it says create a new heart and a new spirit. When we find things in scripture that we know we cannot do ourselves and yet God commands them of us, create a new heart, <laughs> we can't. It should remind us of the, the prayer of Augustine. Oh God, Command what you will, but grant what you command. God, it is yours to command whatever you would, because you are sovereign, because you are holy, because you are in control. You may command, for you are God, but grant it. 
Ezekiel 36, we read of that new heart and new spirit. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We know that it's only with a new heart that we'll be able to love and serve God. Anything close to what the grandfather and the son do in Ezekiel 18. And God promises, come to me. Repent. Turn from your sins. Trust in my grace. Trust in the Savior. Trust in Jesus Christ. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to love my law so that my law, my commandments are not burdensome unto you. So be filled with reliance on God's grace. You can't create a new spirit, but God will do it if you turn to him in repentance and faith. May God cause us to live more like the grandfather and the son, not justifying ourselves, but living in the confidence of Christ, knowing that even if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And and may this cause our lives to be filled with earnest prayer that he would fill our lives in such a way. I'll end by quoting Patrick Fairbairn, who has just a marvelous uh, commentary on Ezekiel. He says this, Never can the church of God in any age justly expect to be safe and prosperous in her condition, to be a fit instrument in the hand of the Lord for executing his righteous purposes till she becomes possessed through all her members of such a spirit of obedience as shall prompt her to embrace heartily his divine will and keep the way of his commandments. Need we wonder when we see how little this is really possessed, that is, that obedience that he described that the flow of divine goodness should be arrested and that we should seem so often to be dwelling among the tombs instead of basking as we should be in the sunshine of life and blessing. How much cause still for the prayer, turn us again, Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. Rekindle in the bosoms of thy people the love of holiness, which so sadly languishes and droops. Let not iniquity and death prevail, where only righteousness and blessing should be found. It be said of us, and may we pray to God in reliance upon his grace. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we thank you uh, for this word and for this time where we can gather together. We praise you uh, for the gospel of grace. We thank you for repentance. We ask that you would grant it to each of us, knowing that uh, we cannot justify ourselves, cannot make excuses, cannot... Uh, think that we deserve blessing where there has been sin. But we would be those who would turn and live according to your power and grace and love. We pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. We end.